Perhaps the biggest concert tour of 2023 in the United States was Taylor Swift's Eras. If you were lucky enough to score a ticket to one of the shows, you would have also received, upon entry, a white bracelet. The bracelet is actually two LEDs, which, at the moment you arrive, are dormant. As the concert gets into full swing, and, in my case, as the sun set, the arena goes dark and the wristbands start to light up at random times with random colors. Okay, so I'm a nerd. I immediately started wondering how this was being done. Clearly, this was a wireless signal. I immediately settled on RFID, but that would mean that there were some sort of transmitters in each section. As different sections lit up with red and other sections lit up with blue and other colors of the spectrum. That all seemed to make sense. That is, until I went to DEF CON. There's this challenge at the wireless village at DEF CON. It's called Fox Hunt. And basically, it's someone has a wireless transmitter and they're set loose in the crowd of 20,000 people across multiple Las Vegas hotels. Your task, if you take the challenge, is to isolate and to identify that person. And it was there, in the thick of DEF CON, that I suddenly realized that those wristbands at Taylor Swift and other concerts, such as The Weekend in 2022, were probably not controlled by RFID. But what? I mean, at DEF CON, you have 20,000 cellular phones, each equipped with Wi-Fi and NFC. And then there are jammers. And then there's just the general chaos of such a large hacking conference. Yet, someone was able to identify the fox in all of that noise. And that's when I realized I needed to better understand what we mean when we say wireless. This is the story of the electromagnetic spectrum and how it can be useful for a hacker. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. My name is Eric Escobar. I am a principal security consultant for SecureWorks. SecureWorks is, is a company that basically the, the whole idea of it is to make, you know, your organization and society more secure. Um, we do that in three different ways. Uh, the first way is the coolest job in the world, which is what I do. I am a professional hacker or penetration tester. And my goal is basically to compromise companies that come to us and say, hey, here are all the ways that I as a threat actor, as an attacker can break in and steal stuff. Um, and this is what you should do to patch it. Then the other prong of that is our incident response team. And that is, you know, a threat actor that is not myself breaks into your organization um, and starts stealing stuff or, you know, compromising computers. And their whole goal is to evict them from your network and, you know, uh, and reduce the splash size or splash damage of, of what that's going to do to your organization um, as quickly as possible and as soon as possible, right? And then the last prong of that is um, we have an EDR, XDR, whatever flavor you want to call it. And that's basically, you can think of it like corporate antivirus, um, you know, and it's our Tejas platform. And the whole goal of Tejas is to prevent me and, uh, you know, any other threat actor from compromising the organization. So with those three pillars, you kind of get the whole cybersecurity realm covered. And then we have our CTU and our CTU is kind of like in the middle of that triangle. And they, it's our counter threat unit. And their whole goal is basically to see what a threat actor is in the real world doing and pulling in all these different knowledge sources um, to get a full picture of like what has happened in the cybersecurity world. So that's, that's kind of my, my like, you know, 30 second uh, uh, explanation of all that. Eric just said penetration testing. And I want to clarify, does Eric do physical pen testing? 
because I thought we were just going to talk about wireless. Oh, we do full physical as well. So if you, uh, if this were a video podcast, you could see behind me on my wall. Um, I have different J-hook tools. I have different lock picking sets, and I even have an under the door tool. We have um, badge cloners that can clone badges, you know, on escalators and elevators, so that we can go in after the fact. So um, mainly, what we do is network penetration testing from you know wireless, from the uh, external perimeter, from your internal network. Uh, to phishing, vishing, you know, hardware hacking, all of that good stuff. But we also have a component of it that is social engineering and full physical penetration test as well. During DEF CON, Eric is heavily involved in the wireless village. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So um, I definitely did not create it. It goes way before my time. Uh, and that's where I actually got my start of uh, doing, you know, wireless security and wireless hacking is going to DEF CON and just saying, hey, this village is really cool. I want to know more about it. And then um, basically I, I kept going year after year and then started getting better and better, leveling up my skills. And then I got to the point where I started competing uh, pretty seriously at their capture the flag, which is kind of like a hacker game where you like solve hacker problems and break into different systems. Um, and then after winning that for three years in a row, they retired me and said, hey, you can't play this game anymore. Like, you can't do this competition anymore. Uh, we'll let you in for life. We'll give you a black badge. Uh, so I get into DEF CON free for life now. Um, and then basically after that, they're like, we'd like your help building the challenges. So um, I, I provide help building a couple of different challenges for that wireless capture the flag and for the wireless village. And, um, you know, being being one of the, the many people behind the table helping organize it. So, since Eric contributes to the village, I'm wondering what sort of challenges he's created or has seen at the Wireless Village. What are the typical scenarios that play out? Yeah, so um, one of my absolute favorite events, and this is the one that actually got me started at the Wireless Village, is... Uh, it is called the fox hunt. Basically, somebody will have like uh, a, like either a smartphone or I'm looking for it around my office right now, like a little hotspot like this, um, and they'll have the hotspot in their pocket, and you have to go find that person throughout all of uh, throughout all of DefCon, which is you know thirty thousand people spread across you know three different casinos, and so you have to basically you know act act like a real life fox hunt. You have to go find who this individual is spread out throughout that many thousands of people. Um, so you have to know your hardware really well. You have to know you know antennas very well you have to know you know things that start and stop your you know that that propagate that signal and things that you know um attenuate that signal and so uh it, it's really fun because you never get that experience pretty much anywhere uh you know anywhere else that it's that spread out and 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 that large typically if i'm doing like a wireless penetration test i'm doing it for like an organization or i'm doing it for like a known building or maybe a campus of buildings um but with that many people it's it's uh it's it's Definitely one of the hardest challenges that you can do there, I think. Hard, because wireless is invisible. Actually, the electromagnetic spectrum is not entirely invisible. Part of it includes visible light that the human eye can see and the human brain can interpret. Other animals can see, and I'm putting that word in quotes, different wavelengths. For example, bats. So, there's a range of frequencies, and there's characteristics for each, which we're going to get into more depth so what are we talking about when we're talking about the wireless village? What's kind of funny is that when you look at wireless, everybody thinks of like, oh, you know, you turn on your AM, FM radio, right? And then it's like you might get on the nerdier range of that, which is, you know, uh, you know, which is like ham radio communication, right? So I'm a ham radio operator as well. And then uh, what, what most people don't realize is that everything that you see is, is electromagnetic waves, you know, so visible light is just a spectrum of the entire EM spectrum uh, that, that you can just see, that's what your eyes can pick up. And so depending on your antenna, depending on your setup, depending on your gear, 
anywhere from visible light, ultraviolet light, you know, infrared light. Those are all, you know, those are all radio waves. Um, just, you know, different sensors can pick up different ones. And so in that same way, you know, we're very familiar with, with the, uh, you know, when people think of radio, when they think of, you know, that spectrum, they think of the things that you can't see. I think this is important. Eric just said different sensors pick up different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. For example, the eye handles one part and the ear, it handles another. And this gets to the different properties. And, and that's the interesting part of my job is that, you know, the different, the different wavelength or different frequency of, of, you know, in that spectrum dictates all the different properties that it has. So one of them, one of those properties might mean that it's seen by your eyeballs. Another one of those properties might mean that you can shoot it off and beam it off into space. And another one of those properties might mean that, uh, you know, it will reflect actually off the atmosphere and back down, which will allow you for over the horizon communication in, in the form of ham radio. So um, that's what's kind of neat about it is that just based upon, you know, one or two different variables, you can get a whole wide variety of, of what that actually looks like in the real world. But it's also interesting when you go to somewhere like a Taylor Swift concert and they all hand out little bracelets and those bracelets are all wireless and the way they communicate is, is through infrared. Wait, so those Taylor Swift wristbands, they're controlled by infrared light? I'm not sure about that. I mean... Doesn't infrared light have to have line of sight? This is how it works. Um, so you walk in Taylor Swift concert, right? I hand you a wristband and that wristband has two little LEDs on it that can be a variety of different colors, right? They're like the, the standard like red, red, green, blue LEDs that they can make at whatever color. Um, and the way that I understand that this wristband works is that they basically have a projector um, that projects infrared light at your wristband. And so based upon the, you know, the modulation or based upon the type of infrared light that is beamed that your wristband receives will dictate the color that it sees. And if you, you know, if you think of like a normal projector, um, you know, that you'd watch a movie on, if that's being projected in infrared light, you can project different, you know, shapes and symbols and, you know, moving things on it based upon what your wristband sees. So if you're sitting in one seat, it doesn't matter what seat you're seated in, it, it matters where, where that projector is there. So if you, you know, on one side of the stadium and you move to the other one, wherever they are beaming that projection, um, that will dictate what color your wristband is if your wristband can see that projector that's being broadcast. Um, so it's a really crazy technology that I was like, you know, of course, uh, like many people at Taylor Swift concert, you're picking apart the, the wireless piece that's going into this and the technology behind your wristband. Um, I'm sure, right? And I thought that was a really cool concept to get like, you know, all the crazy different variety of colors and, you know, shapes and, and symbols. So what I'm hearing is that there's some things that are line of sight and there are other things that can permeate walls and objects. Yeah, absolutely. And that's all based upon the different character, you know, the, the wavelength, the frequency of, of that, you know, wireless, that wireless wave, that radio wave. Then there's something else, distance. Like Bluetooth, it's limited to so many meters away. And NFC, it's even less than that. Yep, absolutely. And so when you think about, um, you know, I think the best way to think about that is if you have a flashlight, there are lots of different flashlights that all basically give off the same visible light or the same radio wave. Um, but what can change a lot is the amount of power that you put behind that flashlight. So your your car headlights are, are a lot more powerful than typically your iPhone flashlight. Um, which is far more or which is far less powerful than the spotlight on like say a police helicopter. And so even though they're all basically um, you know uh, 
beaming the same the same visible light, the same radio waves, that characteristic of the spectrum, the power behind that is basically dictates how far it can go, how many photons are, are going downrange, so to say. Um, and then you have, you know, scatter and how and how well uh, different things will basically reflect uh, or, or absorb different types of the, you know, uh, different parts of the spectrum. So in the term of like uh, Bluetooth, like you just mentioned, so Bluetooth, then same thing of 2.4 gigahertz, uh, that's that's specifically the, the frequency that most Bluetooth works off of. Same thing with wireless, a lot of wireless works off of 2.4 gigahertz. Um, and that is basically the same frequency that your microwave uses. Okay, that's cool. So the same frequency that gives me my wireless signal in any room in my house with a few more watts of energy behind it can microwave my food. So putting more energy behind a signal, it can definitely change the end result. That's how microwave heats up your food is it excites, you know, uh, the water molecules in your food. And when it excites those molecules, they vibrate a lot, which heats up your food. Uh, and so your Wi-Fi, basically, if you if you turned up the power on your Wi-Fi enough, you could basically cook your food with it. Um, the only difference is there is that your microwave just has, you know, 1.2 kilowatts of power behind it. And even the highest power access point behind, you know, that you, I don't know if you can see the one behind me in, in on screen, but that has, you know, in the milliwatts, you know, so you're thinking one millionth the power of it. So one, you can watch Netflix on your phone and the other one, you can cook your steak, you know, leftover from the night before. And that all has to do with the power there. The frequency is all the same. You know, the, the wavelength is all the same, but uh, uh, it's the power behind it. And then the modulation that comes with what you put in that radio wave as well. So I checked this out. The average 2.4 gigahertz microwave today uses about a thousand watts of energy. A Wi-Fi router, it uses 10. And Bluetooth, it uses only one watt. And Bluetooth low energy, it's literally that. It's 0.5 watts. They all use the 2.5 gigahertz to broadcast, but with different energy and different results. Yep, it's literally that. It's literally that same frequency if it's 2.4 gigahertz. And when I say gigahertz, people, you know, their eyes glaze over and they're like, oh my gosh, what, is, what does that mean? And so uh, the best way to explain it is is one hertz is like one, you know, going back and forth on your swing one time. That's that's one you one of those, if you say one hertz, that's back and forth once on the spectrum, like a, like a wave in a pool uh, per one second. And so when you hear gigahertz, giga is just the, the metric term for billion. And so that's one billion cycles that happen in one second. And so when we talk about frequency or wavelengths, um, that's that's what we measure it in is, is that hertz, you know, how many how many basically waves can go across, um, you know, in, in open space over a given second. And so you'll hear different radio frequencies will use different, you know, uh, hertz. So you might think of like a ham radio might be seven megahertz, which is a much uh, uh, which is much, you know, larger wavelength um, because it only does 7 million waves in one second, whereas Wi-Fi is 2.4 gigahertz. So that's 2.4 billion waves in a given second. And then Wi-Fi is actually getting, uh, if you've ever heard like five, you know, five gigahertz Wi-Fi, that is, you know, like Wi-Fi AC or Wi-Fi 6, like those those newer iterations of Wi-Fi, um, they use a higher a higher frequency wavelength. Doesn't go as far, but you can pack in a lot more data because uh, you're doing that many more cycles per second. Um, and so that's the trade-off, right? Is your older 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, you can you can reach that you know from your front yard potentially, but it's not going to give you know you're potentially not going to be able to you know do a Zoom call off of that. Whereas 5.8 gigahertz Wi-Fi, what you know the newer newer editions of Wi-Fi are on those those you can you know stream to your heart's content, but they they won't extend you know all the way out to your mailbox, so to say. There are some signals that can go through walls, and some signals that can't. 
Yeah, so the, the properties of your of your radio wave, they're gonna be the ones that um that really that really dictate what gets absorbed um and what's not. So uh so the best way to think about this is that if you were to look at something like like Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi is a perfect example, 2.4 gigahertz. That signal, when it energizes water, when it energizes, um, you know, what what it's, uh, uh, you know, the water molecules, when it energizes it, that that wireless signal drops. It, it's used in energizing that water. And so in that way, you can think of it and say, okay, well, um, if you had say a lot of fog around and you're trying to broadcast 2.4 gigahertz, it's gonna it's gonna get stopped by those water molecules um, based upon what what they energize. And so you have different frequencies. Like say say you had the the range of the electromagnetic spectrum, and with that range of electromagnetic spectrum, some of it is visible light and some of it is Wi-Fi. Well, we all know that visible light is stopped by let's say your your wall or your front door. That's why people can't see into your house because that light is being absorbed or reflected by the material in your door. And the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum is no different. There's just different properties associated with it. Um, so you might have uh, uh, like your your AM FM radio that does a really good job at um, has really long wavelengths, and so it can typically get through things like the walls of your house or you know your car, and that's how you're able to listen to radio inside your house and inside your car because it can actually you know basically get through those different types of materials. So that's where you have a whole thing of material science and you know uh, you know radio science that goes into that goes into all of it because um depending on what your application is you might want your wi-fi signal your wireless signal to extend as far as possible and then in other circumstances you may not want it to to emanate you know as little as possible right um so there's there's tons of different engineering solutions for all things from materials that you know absorb and reflect to other ones that let it pass right through and so for so for wi-fi what we notice a lot of is going back to that talking about the uh looking for a needle and needle stack at defcon um what are people made mostly out of water so what absorbs the wi-fi signal really well uh water does and so if you have somebody with something with a device in their pocket and you think there's thirty thousand other attendees you're not just going to get a constant signal strength anymore instead what you're going to get is you're going to get a varying signal as people are walking by as you know people are you know going behind different you know different structures like concrete would absorb it pretty well steel metal absorbs radio signals really really well so it's not just hey a constant wireless signal and you're looking for the strength you also have to think about is this is you know metal going to reflect that that you know that wireless frequency that that wireless radio wave off of it is it going to absorb it is the person holding it if the person's holding it in their pocket versus their backpack it's going to be wildly different as far as what gets absorbed and what doesn't so there's so many different factors to take into account and and the thing that makes it most difficult i think for me is that um is that you can't see it you know you can't see it um so you don't really know Whereas it's intuitive to somebody with a flashlight that if you have a flashlight and you hold it in a, in a house of mirrors, that light is going to go everywhere. It's going to reflect everywhere. Whereas if you go into an absolute pitch black room uh, that absorbs that light, you know, you might be able to point it at a black wall, but it's not going to emanate anywhere else. And so those materials dictate how it gets reflected, how it gets absorbed and how well that signal gets gets communicated. Right. Um, so. Again, I could talk about that for a full hour of how those different radio waves work and different characteristics of different pieces of the spectrum um, and all of that. So let's go back to the fox hunt at DEF CON. You've got this hotspot that's roaming around and you've got all this noise. Like literally everybody's trying to jam the network. How are you isolating the hotspot? How are you able to pick out a needle in the haystack? 
Yeah, um, that, that's a great question. So so for DEF CON specifically, what we'll do, and, and we do this at, at work as well, is that every, um, if you have a phone and your phone needs to, to talk to Wi-Fi, uh, and how does your phone distinguish your, your home Wi-Fi from your neighbor's Wi-Fi? The first, the first way would be to look at signal strength, which one is close enough to it, right? Which, which access point is close enough to it? The other one is that embedded in that signal is, is something called a MAC address or a hardware address that uniquely identifies each wireless hotspot. So if, you, if you're, say, at a McDonald's, um, a McDonald's will have one wireless hotspot. And if you go to another McDonald's, it'll have a completely different, unique, almost like a serial number that you could think of it. Um, and and that hardware identifier is is unique or should be technically unique to that hotspot. And so what we say is, hey, here's the wireless name, but also here's the hardware ID of this device. So go find this hardware ID. And so then uh, and so you can basically, if you're looking at your at your you know your analysis or you're looking at all the different hotspots that are available or all the different wireless networks that are available on your laptop, you can filter by that one unique identifier and basically say okay, this is the one that I want to look for, and this is the one they want to key off of and go from there. Okay, so you have identifiers that you can isolate out of a noisy field for the specific target that you're looking for. The, the best way to think about this, to, to kind of talk about the gigahertz and to talk about you know what we are talking about as far as spectrum goes and as far as wireless hotspots go, is that uh, I, like to, I like relating everything back to something that people can visualize. And so if you picture... Everybody, every wireless connection, instead of it being Wi-Fi, instead of it being something you can't see, just picture that being like a flashlight, right? Or maybe maybe a match um, or a candle, so, something along those lines that produces visible light. Now, every they, they're all on the same frequency, so they all basically glow the same color. Now, those that frequency is 2.4 gigahertz, and that's sliced up into like if it's if it's 2.4 gigahertz, it's 13 different channels, and channels are basically. You could think of it being 2.4 gigahertz and then maybe 2.41, 2.42, 2.43. So it's still it's still in that general zone of 2.4, but it's a little bit off off the needle one way or the other. And so that's you can think of like you know every time you you dial your radio, um, you know, and you think of like you know 88.9 or 93.7 or like those are those are those different frequencies. And so that's what Wi-Fi is. Wi-Fi can be stored in those 13 channels. Um, but still, if there's thousands of devices out there, there's still devices sharing all of those you know all of those channels even so even all of those you know separate gigahertz channels um, that are there and then what you can think of is that those lights the you know those flashlights or those candles they're blinking at a certain rate that give off the information right so so they're blinking at a certain rate um, and think of it like Morse code or just a light going on and off. And so obviously computers are really good at, at decoding signals. And so that's what they do. And so each, each um, candle is blinking at a certain rate, uh, you know, giving off data. And what your device that's, that's reading that or, you know, watching that is it's looking at all of those candles and saying, which one of them is blinking the way that I expect it to be blinking. And so that's the best way to think about it is that each of one of them are candles blinking at a separate rate. And your goal is to find not just a candle, but to find the candle that is blinking at the specific rate that you would expect it to blink at. And then you have to go find it. Um, and then obviously what comes with that is if there's too many candles, it's going to be too bright to see how any of them are blinking. And that's that's what you can think of when you think of radio jamming is that that's where there's interference um, from other other sources, other light sources, other radio sources is if it's too bright, you can't make out any candles blinking. Right. And so 
Um, you know, that's what potentially the military would do if they want to, you know, hide a signal, if they want to make sure that somebody can't read another signal or, you know, make it so that um, devices couldn't communicate. But but that to bring it back to that to that finding a needle in a needle sack, that's essentially what you're looking for is the equivalent of looking for a candle that is blinking at a very specific, you know, iteration or, or, or rate compared to all the other candles that are out there, which makes it really, really hard. Um, but again, you couldn't do it without a computer. So we have frequency, wavelengths, and the energy behind each device. There's another nuance, which is frequency hopping. Um, do you want to explain what frequency hopping is, or should I? Uh... I'd like to hear Eric's explanation of it. I mean, I read up on Hedy Lamar, the Austrian-born film actress from the 1940s. She was exceptionally smart and hung out with ambitious folk like Howard Hughes. When she wasn't starring in motion pictures in Hollywood, she was tinkering around in a lab with ideas. During World War II, the Allies had trouble with Germans intercepting their messages. Hetty came up with this idea of changing frequencies randomly during a message so that anyone eavesdropping wouldn't get the whole message, only the frequency that they were listening to. That's the beginning of it. So where are we today? Yeah, gosh, where we are today is uh, cloaked in top secrecy, right? To, to, to explain frequency hopping to, to somebody who maybe doesn't understand anything, right? We'll start, start, start at the base. If, if you and I, Rob, are both talking on, on a walkie-talkie, that is typically locked into one frequency. Um, so we, we can't talk at the same time because we're both on the same frequency. Um, and so anybody else who has that same frequency, you know, who, who has a radio as well as ours, they can tune to that same frequency and listen to exactly like what we're saying. Um, now, of course, that's where encryption comes in. And if we had encrypted devices, they potentially couldn't, uh, you know, they could they could hear our encrypted signal, but they couldn't um, they couldn't understand what we were saying. We're not talking about encryption. We're talking about frequency hopping. And so pretending that encryption doesn't exist and Rob and I are just talking on, on a walkie talkie on the same frequency, anybody can listen to it. Um, and in the same in the same way that somebody could listen to it, somebody could also transmit on that frequency. And when they transmit on the frequency, now now Rob and I we can't we can't communicate at all because there's somebody else basically talking in, in the same room that we are, right? So it's they're, they're transmitting on the same frequency, so so it it jams all communication. What frequency hopping does is Rob and I there's many methods that you can do this, but one common one is that we would both agree, hey, we're gonna talk on say channel one for a second. And then we're going to move to channel three the next second, and then channel four the next second, channel five the next second. And we pre-program this or pre-agree upon it so that we don't have to think about it. We basically just just change what frequency as we're going. Um, and there might be some handoffs or something like that. But, but typically, that's all that it is, is we move where we are talking and we agree upon it at the same time. And the benefit that you have there is, one, if somebody's trying to eavesdrop on you, they have to have a lot of, of basically wireless you know, capability to be able to see that entire swath of spectrum. Um, the other benefit that you get is that if there's something causing disturbance on any one of those other channels or somebody else is listening on one of those other channels, um, that that you avoid interference or noise. And, and some different algorithms are better at basically avoiding where somebody else is already transmitting. So it's, it's a great way to basically reduce interference, reduce somebody from just listening to what to what your radio traffic is doing. So, Rob, how, how does that sound to you? Does that a pretty decent explanation? Anything else that I should clarify? Actually, that's great. I know like the original patent had a player piano scroll in order to change the frequencies. That's one reason why the military didn't use it in World War II. Player pianos were heavy to fly. But this technology was used in the Bay of Pigs invasion in the early 1960s. 
And today, it's pretty much accepted technology in our cell phones. Certainly, computers, not player pianos, they take care of the frequency hopping now. Yeah, and it makes it makes my job a lot harder from an attacker's perspective because if somebody's using frequency hopping, now I can't just listen to the frequency that they're on. What I have to do is basically use um, a, a wide a wide band, you know, software defined radio that can listen to the entire spectrum and then piece it all back together, in, you know, in software to to get that original signal out of it. So it makes it makes you know a would be attacker's life much more difficult if they don't have that keen sequence to know what channel they're going to hop to next. Software-defined radio. I've heard of that. Hackers use it all the time. What's Eric's definition of it? Oh, gosh. So my, so this is probably not the most accurate definition, but but my definition is um, many radios, like, like your standard radio, they're tuned with something like a crystal. that They're tuned to match a very specific frequency. A software-defined radio, instead of having to actually spin a physical dial or move something to actually tune your radio, um, to it, uh, in so you can basically do all of that in software. So they have, you know, um, all these, all these, you know, systems on a chips. They have all these FPGAs, which are basically, you know, um, very purpose-driven pieces of circuitry that can tune your radio automatically in software. And so it makes your life as, as a wireless penetration tester, as somebody who's just messing with wireless, you know, anything on the wireless spectrum, a lot easier because you don't have to buy a purpose-built radio for a very specific task. Um, and so what's what's funny is that if you look at like a uh, like a one dollar Wi-Fi chip that you can buy off eBay for like, you know, some home automation project to try and recreate that in software would take like a five thousand dollar software defined radio. And now the difference there is that uh, a Wi-Fi chip that you buy, you know, off, off of eBay for a dollar that is tuned specifically to two point four gigahertz to do that exact protocol to do everything that is just. Wi-Fi, whereas if you have, um, it, whereas software-defined radio, it can do all of that, but it has to have all this processing power and all this compute to be able to try and recreate all of that process in software. So it requires far more overhead to do it. And so software-defined radio basically just lets you do all the radio magic that would typically require physical tinkering with circuits and and different tuning, and it lets you do it all in software through those different chips and all the different, um, you know, basically software that's built into there to be able to take your computer's processor and, and you know, divine the signal out of that. So Eric just said it would take like $5,000 in software-defined radio to do this. Clearly, not all software-defined radios are $5,000, are they? Not all of them. So one to do like Wi-Fi because because Wi-Fi is such a high frequency and there's so much data that goes into it. That probably would be about five thousand dollars. Price might have come down in the next you know in the past couple of years, but like um, if you if you were to buy like a twenty dollars software defined radio off off the internet, which is what like a lot of your entry level software defined radios are, there's no no chance that it could do um, that. It could basically recreate Wi-Fi, uh, you know using that much more accurate clock cycle that has just more accurate everything that can basically um, slice and dice the wireless spectrum in that in that way. So I've kind of laid the foundation here. Hopefully now we can talk about some cool techniques. Lots of different things that you can do. Um, there's a very famous video out there by uh, by a hacker called Sammy Camcar. Um, and what, what he has done is he basically says, hey, you have a garage door remote and the way your garage door remote, it works through um, something called like a, a lot. Well, I mean, garage door remotes can work off a, a large variety of different things, but typically it's like on off key modulation and all the fancy thing that basically says you're going to send a radio wave that's going to have a one and then a radio wave that's going to be a zero and a radio wave that's going to be a one and maybe another one and a zero. And so you can think of it is that like that is kind of like the fingerprints on the bump of a, a bump of a key. 
Um, and if you have the right sequence, then your garage door will open and unlock, right? And now garage doors have gotten a little bit better. Um, same thing with car keys and, and a lot of these little smaller wireless devices that we used to unlock and lock things. And they'll rotate those keys often, but no matter what, they typically have a length that they, that they inspect. Um, and so what you can do is basically send a large combination of one zeros, one zeros, one zeros. And if you can send the right combination of 12 one zeros, um, then it will cause your garage door to, to close or open up, um, which obviously is the exact same as pressing that signal. Now, the real game of it comes is how many, you know, how many ones and zeros is it looking for? Is it looking for 12, which would be 12 bit because each bit is a one or a zero. Is it 12 bit? Is it 14 bit? And so basically if it's 12 bit, you can think it's looking for a trillion, you know, one in a trillion guess as to what that could be. But then you do some fancy math on it and you can lay over different sequences on top of each other. And so when you lay over those different sequences on top of each other, now all of a sudden you're not having to do, you know, a couple hundred million guesses. You could squeeze that down into, you know, potentially a couple million guesses. And uh, if there's anything computers do really well, it's that they can, you know, basically, um, you know, go through all those codes, find the most efficient path to do all of that, and then transmit it at a very quick rate. And so I believe in like something like his video, he could open up, you know, one brand of garage door or of gate or or what have you um in, in about a minute and uh it was it would work for you know any any type of um garage door or you know security gate that you could think of that uses those pretty typical clickers and so when you say fuzz the wireless spectrum you're basically throwing out random information and seeing what responds back to that and you'd be surprised when you fuzz you know uh when, when you send out random signals what devices might say hey I'm responding back to you because you, it sounds like you're trying to talk to me. Um, I mean, you think of meat thermometers, you think of your car door, you think of baby monitors, um, you think of dog shock collars, all those devices might have that type of interaction uh, embedded into it. So baby monitors, that's a great example. I know 10 years ago, it was a big deal in that they were using a particular frequency that was pretty low end and pretty common. So one could hear another neighbor's baby monitor. Exactly. And so, um, you know, what a lot of baby baby manufacturers did for like baby monitors is they basically just got a walkie talkie and put it into a child friendly looking, you know, piece of hardware. And that walkie talkie was always on. And so it was it was, you know, cheap and easy because walkie talkies had been a thing for a long time. And so you put that same circuitry, that same level of stuff into, you know, a baby monitor and say, hey, now I can listen one way and you just cut the speaker off on one side, you know, the transmit ability on the parent side of the monitor and just you listen only in on the other side. Right. Um, what would be the, the side of the baby? And so what they basically thought is like, OK, well, what are the odds that, you know, somebody's going to be close enough with the same brand to be able to overhear it? Um, and so they would take, you know, they would take those monitors and basically reduce the power so that they could only go maybe, you know, 50 feet or something along those lines. Right. And so in that realm of it, you could look at it and basically say, oh, OK, well, you know, that's that's not the worst idea for something that that's cheap and off the shelf. We don't have to re-engineer new circuitry. We don't have to introduce, you know, any encryption if we turn the power down low enough. Um, but what that means is that there's no encryption there. So anybody with uh, the same model, you know, uh, baby monitor could, like you said, listen in. And the same thing used to happen with cord with cordless phones back in the day too. Is that um, same manufacturers would be on the same one, and you could use that to listen into other ones that uh, that were also broadcasting. Now, now a lot of baby monitors are use something like Wi-Fi, right? Which has encryption built in, which has security built in, which has you know different types of methods of viewing it, if not just listening to it. So 
Um, like, like with most things, technology gets a lot better in, in a short period of time. So let's move on to some of the attacks that Eric might be doing as part of his pen testing. Yeah. So one of the main things that we get for enterprise um, wireless looking, looking at like enterprise security is basically saying, Hey, what, what does our wireless, what does our Wi-Fi look like? Um, you know, can, can I basically impersonate a corporate device that is connected to a corporate network? Um, and like a, when we go way back down to what we were talking about before about the different you know frequencies and spectrums and gigahertz, um, that's where we basically have uh, special software where we can plug in a lot of different wireless radios. It'll aggregate all that data into like one place that we can look at it. And then we can see, oh, this is the configuration of, of you know, your company's wireless network. And then we can potentially try and take advantage of that configuration and say, oh, it looks like, you know, they only like that there's a shared password. So many, um, many home networks like your Comcast router, your, you know, your AT&T router, any of those home off the shelf, you know, routers that you get, they will basically broadcast a, you know, one wireless, uh, you know, SSID, which is the, the wireless name that you can think of. Um, and then they all share one password. Well, if I can get any user device to give me that password, maybe it's mounted on the wall, maybe somebody types it into their phone or um, you know any other different ways that that could get leaked or maybe I just steal somebody's laptop and it's and it's on that laptop um, if I can get that shared key that they call it a PSK a pre-shared key if I can get that pre-shared key um, then I'm able to basically connect my laptop into you know that corporate network and then access that corporate network from potentially an unsecured space like a parking lot like a lobby um, or from a long distance using a, a long distance antenna um, and so that's one of the main things that we look at is that, hey, is that corporation, is that company, are they using one key shared across, you know, a thousand devices or does each device have its own, have its own key? Now, obviously the more secure way to do that is each device has its own key so that if one laptop goes missing, you just deactivate that key. However, that requires infrastructure, that requires an administrator, that requires authentication, that requires a lot of different other steps. Um, which may or may not be right for that for that organization. So that's where we basically come in and say, what is this being used for? Can we break into it? Um, you know, and, and if we can, it you know, is it that important? How worried are you about it? And uh, you know, how critical is that wireless network to your organization? Can you just turn it off? So there, there's all. I mean, I could do a full hour long podcast just on that alone. How long is a typical engagement then? That is the ultimate question, right? That's where our scoping comes in. But but essentially a, a wireless penetration test or any penetration test, we look at the size and scope of that organization. And if you were to say, hey, um, like you are a one floor of an office building in say Fresno, California, San Francisco, California, that'll probably take about a week of time um, to look at all the different access points that they have. And access points are basically just um, additional uh, uh, like wireless routers, like your home wireless router, but they're spread across the building and all kind of work together. Um, so that you know you have wide coverage instead of just one place that it comes from. So to take a look at not just those access points and their configurations, but also to see how do end users interact with you know rogue rogue wireless devices or you know malicious wireless devices, um, are they configured properly as well to basically evade and avoid um, any any you know potentially malicious wireless access points that are around? And as a part of what I do is I'll I'll stand up a wireless network that looks very similar to your corporate network. So if you're if you're say uh, you know, corporation one, two, three, I might have a wireless network that's corporation one, two, three, four. 
and see do do I get anybody to connect to it um and and if I do then I'll try and steal passwords from that device right and then uh the other the other things that you might say too is that how fast can that corporation see that there's a one a corporation one two three four wireless network that's right there right so we're testing not only the end users and how the end users devices respond but also the security team to say hey do they even get an alert associated with this or not so in that case signal strength really would come in handy if you're sitting there at a cubicle and you're broadcasting out company one, two, three, four, and people would try to associate with that dominant signal. Typically so. And so like, uh, you know, so if we're, if this is like a physical assessment, we're trying to sneak something in, we'll try and sneak in a device that is as central as possible. Sometimes we have, we have customers and what they'll say is like, look, we don't want to pay for you to sneak in and do all of that stuff. Instead, we'll just place one of your devices for you and then have you do the test from that device right there. Um, so they basically get a less expensive penetration test that avoids the physical aspect of it and just say, hey, let's assume somebody could get into the building. Let's assume that anybody could place something, you know, behind a copier or in a cubicle. Um, what could they do if it's actually there? Or sometimes they'll just say, look, we would just want to see what it looks like if you do this from, say, the parking, a public parking lot where anybody could park and might have this in the trunk of their car. So that's basically where we'll sit with a with a customer and say, hey, what are the different things, you know, what is your scenario that you're worried about? And from a high level view, here's what we do a lot. We're experts at this. And like, here are our recommendations of, of what of what we would do if we were scoping out your building and, and trying to compromise your wireless. So what, you bring out a large Yagi antenna and you try to break in that way? If this were a, a live video and you could see the wall behind me, I have a, a large Yagi antenna that's a couple feet long. So I'm um, there are several times we'll sit in a parked rent a car and uh, you know, through through the window we'll, you know, hit that wireless signal from, you know, half a mile away, quarter mile away. Um, we've even done it so much to basically get a hotel that is right next door facing the company. And so from the comfort of our hotel room, we're picking up their wireless using that dish antenna or using a Yagi antenna. Wait, there are practical uses of this knowledge in wireless communication? So this is my specialty. I'm the wireless technical lead at, at you know, Securex for pen testing. So like, this is what I, this is what I nerd out and this is what I love. But, um, you know, we have, we have a, a full set of other like hackers, right? Like we have people that's specify in like medical devices, right? And medical devices cross a lot over into the realm of wireless. We have people that look at just hardware specifically that also crosses into the hardware realm. We have our physical testing, which also puts us, you know, in the wireless realm. So it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, yes, there is wireless, there's wireless security, there are wireless devices out there, but it's just a piece of the puzzle because all of, you know, wireless eventually leads you to communicate to something. What are you communicating with? And is it a risk if like a threat actor or an adversary can also communicate with it or view you communicating with it? So um, that that's the interesting part to me is that it's only one piece of the puzzle um, and people that are, you know, we have people that, that work with us and, you know, um, just other hackers out there that are just as passionate about their thing as I am about wireless. And so that's that's a huge piece of it. Um, and so, yeah, and it's specifically how DEF CON goes. Um, all of the individuals behind that table all have wildly different backgrounds that have all led them to basically be behind that table, um, creating challenges that are, that are fun and have real world, you know, applications to them. I'd like to thank Eric Exobar for coming on the show and talking about, well, the electromagnetic spectrum. I didn't quite understand it as much as I did after listening to Eric. He had some great analogies, and really that type of teaching is what we need more of in the InfoSec space. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like Narrative Information Security podcasts. 
And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great stories coming up, including more on quantum and IoT, of course. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.